everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, everyone, welcome back to Lightning Rounds. Uh, it is Brian, what am I, I'm Brandon, you're Brian. Um, you, you gotta bear with me, guys. Things are a little weird here. I just moved a couple days ago. I'm in a makeshift studio in my basement, and I'm supposed to have a baby in like three days. Um, but so great is our love for you that we are recording lightning rounds. <sighs> uh, now, we're going to talk to you about some radiology stuff today, um, specifically chest x-rays. But before we do that, um, we have to talk about something even more important, which is an announcement and the announcement is that uh, Mr. Brian Bowling here, my co-host, uh, was recently anointed, uh, I think that's the right word, uh, as a, an FCCM, uh, a fellow of the College of Critical Care Medicine. And I, I thought we should pause and acknowledge that because it's, it's actually a, a, a kind of a, a nice and maybe significant accomplishment in a man's career. So, Brian, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to applaud you, and it's going to sound silly because it's just me, but congratulations. Thanks. I like the slow golf clap. Yep. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if, if it, this is kind of a thing that a lot of people don't understand outside of medicine and perhaps even inside medicine, but th this is just a, the process that um, I think it exists in pretty much every specialty, uh, but usually the kind of presiding uh, governing body in that specialty, which uh, for us is the SCCM, Society of Critical Care Medicine, um, they have a process to acknowledge people who have sort of uh, accomplished something of worth in that specialty and, and been, I guess sort of really been a leader is the way to put it. Um, it's, it's not a clinical thing usually. It's not saying this person is good at medicine, uh, I guess because how would you say that? But it's usually saying that they have um, accomplished certain things and perhaps scholarship, uh, leadership, education, uh, developing programs, things like that. So it's saying that, uh, you know, somebody is of a certain amount of, of worth and it's a nice achievement. I think how stringent the requirements are depends on the on the body and the specialty. It, it seems like in some specialties, anyone who's, let's say, uh, board certified will get uh, awarded a fellowship. But in critical care, it's it's pretty stringent. Um, and so it, it says something that, that Brian is a, an FCCM now. Yeah, thanks. Um, it, yeah, it's, there's not a lot of, particularly APPs. Um, so I, I feel really fortunate to be in that group that uh, among PAs and NPs and nurses in general, it's a pretty small number. So, Yeah, and I feel like our uh, leadership has tended to be more multidisciplinary than some. I think some, uh, some of these bodies won't even award fellows to non-physicians. And certainly, you know, even for us, the majority of uh, SCCMs are, are physicians, but there are, you know, some PAs, NPs, nurses, pharmacists, and so on. So anyway, I thought it was worth pausing upon. All right, back to important stuff. Let's talk about x-rays. Um, we do a lot of x-rays in the yep. ICU. Sometimes I'm not sure why. They're not always hugely helpful, but we sure like doing them. Uh, mostly, uh, mostly chest x-rays. I think that's fair to say. Every once in a blue moon, I'll get an abdomen or 
I guess if you're doing a lot of trauma and things, there's some other body parts. I don't know. Are you doing skull x-rays or anything else over there? No. In, in terms of plain x-rays, it's pretty much just chest. We do actually get a fair amount of abdominal x-rays. Uh, for one reason or another, we seem to have to get a lot of them to confirm feeding tube placement. Um, the the other technologies that we have to confirm those placements frequently uh, fail or are inconclusive. So uh, for that's whatever, funny because I, I, ch- I do chests for uh, for feeding tubes as well. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, uh, I don't know. I learned that early on. It's, um, you just make sure you mention you're looking for, you know, an NG tube or something and they'll include the upper abdomen, um, or a, a chabdomen as some places call it. But, oh, uh, like that it. way, if it goes high and it's in the lung, you could still, you could see where it is. Um, and I was uh, told that it's less radiation than an abdomen. Oh, that's The only time I get abdomens is if I, I'm trying to get it like post pyloric or somewhere deep and then, uh, you know, a chest won't go low enough, but yeah. So that brings up an interesting point that I think as clinicians, we don't necessarily understand is the dose of radiation that's involved in these things um, and the technique involved. I had a very interesting talk with one of our x-ray techs one day uh, who was trying to shoot an abdominal x-ray of all things. And it was very interesting to just to see the limitations on what could be done given patient size and, um, you know, other other considerations as far as surgical incisions, et cetera. Um, you know, and they, how they adjust the dose of radiation and why certain pictures look better than other pictures and stuff. So, uh, I think it's sometimes interesting to know and appreciate from their point of view. Um, and those guys, even not even the radiologists, just the radiology techs can often be a, uh, a tremendous source of help when you're trying to figure out, um, the best study to get for a certain thing. Yeah, you know, it's one more area that's super specialized, but, you know, overlaps a lot with what we do. And the more you understand about it and the less it's a black box, the more you can really kind of give intelligent care. I'm I'm sure it just drives them nuts when we, like, order studies that are, you know, so far from being the right thing or just totally gobbledygook. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I I tell students a lot, when you order a, a radiology study, in most EMR systems, there's a place that says why you're ordering the study. And I think the default amongst us for clinicians is we sort of feel like that's a challenge to us. Like, well, I want it because I want it. Uh, You know, why do I have to justify it to you? Um, But I think that's really less of a concern. And more of it is if you are real specific and tell me why you want this study, um, I can probably help you make sure you're getting the best study. And I have found that the more specific I am with that, the more often I will get a call from the radiology department saying, hey, you ordered this, but what I think you'd be better off getting is this instead. So they're really helpful right. if you seek their advice. It's like a it's like a consultation to yeah. them. It's, it's, uh, I, I had a, a pharmacist tell me that half of the challenge of their job is when you get a question from a clinician, it's answering the what they actually want to know, not what they asked you. Yeah. Because if, if you are confused enough, you're all, you know, you're already asking the wrong questions, but yeah. Okay. So, uh, chest x-rays. I mean, this is definitely the lion's share of, of what we do. Um, we kind of use this as a, almost a bedside tool because they're portable generally these days. You can get them pretty easily. They're pretty cheap. Uh, certainly they have some radiation, but in the grand scheme of uh, critical illness, it's kind of minimal harm. Um, so it's almost like the, the more brutal form of bedside ultrasound. And we just kind of use it to get quick looks at things. Um, what is, you know, what kind of stuff are we usually using these to, like what questions are we answering with a portable chest X-ray? 
Well, so that's a great first point, I think, is do we always have a question? Because you mentioned we get these sometimes daily, and I think sometimes we don't need them daily, right? I find myself from time to time sitting there and going, uh, do I really need a chest x-ray in the morning on this patient? Uh, so I think the first thing is to have a good idea of what it is you're looking for, not just getting it because it's a new day in the ICU. Right. Yeah, it is one of those things that's often done routinely, and therefore there's probably room to not do it. But, you know, the fact that there is a, a idea or, you know, practice of doing that suggests that there is some things we're looking at, you know, with those studies. Right. Uh, you know, it's, let's say you're getting one every day in the morning with your morning labs and everything else you do routinely. What are you looking for on those? Well, I mean, hopefully you're looking for, you know, new or progressive pathology in the lungs, I think is predominantly what I'm looking for. Um, I know certain places, depending on what you're, you know, if you're in a trauma setting, maybe you're looking for fractures or soft tissue injury or something like that. But I think I'm, I'm mostly looking for, um, you know, why can't this person breathe as well as they should be able to? Yeah. So we're, we're looking at the lung fields and saying, you know, is there pneumonia or something? Yeah. I'd like to say, um, uh, pulmonary edema, I think is a common one because it's so common for us to manipulate people's kind of fluid balance. And this, I mean, it would probably drive the physical diagnosticians nuts, but this is a honestly a, a common and I think often useful way of asking whether a patient is a, you know, a quote fluid overloaded, which really what you're asking is, are, are they developing pulmonary edema related to their fluid status, which obviously uh, is not a direct commentary on their fluid balance, but uh, it's a clinically relevant one because if they're getting fluid in their lungs, they probably have too high of hydrostatic pressure. Sure. Um, a lot of the other stuff I think is medical things, right? We're looking at uh, lines. If we put in like a central line or some other kind of device that can be seen in the chest, we often want to know where it is. Uh, ET tubes, uh, often after placed and sometimes routinely, we want to see where they're at because... They can't go left, right, forward, or backwards, but they can go in or out. If they go too far in, they're going to get stuck in one lung. And if they go too far out, they're going to be out. So sometimes nice to confirm their location. Yeah, I think that's that's the other thing we do is after placement. And then, like you said, routinely, I think, you know, I, I find myself asking sometimes, do I need to get a daily chest x-ray just because this patient's intubated? Um, and I think the answer is probably no, but I think I typically err on the side of yes, uh, just to, like you said, confirm that the ET tube's in the right place. But it's, again, one of those things that do we need to confirm it's in the right place? Do I have any suspicion that it's not, that it's suddenly moved? Um, you know, and I guess it would depend on if you have a patient who's basically comatose or do you have a patient who's flipping and flopping around the bed? Right. Yeah, so those are the common things, I think. And, you know, other lung pathology that's sort of not a parenchymal disease is probably less common, but can be important. You know, if does someone have a pleural effusion is there a pneumothorax? Certainly a lot less common, but you, you want to catch it when it's there. Um, so I think these are the common things. I thought we would just go through our approach to reading one of these. Because as far as radiology studies go, I think this is, leading out ultrasound, this might be the most common one that we'll look at and try to personally interpret. You know, If I do a, an MRI of the abdomen or something, I might skim through the scan, but it's not going to mean much to me. I'm relying on the radiologist to read it. Whereas for a chest x-ray, they read these, but sometimes I 
you know, barely even look at the reads because uh, it comes back way later. Uh, I, I don't need that much help with it. We, we could be pretty good at these. Um, and it's just like, it's like an afterthought. It's like when they overread EKGs. Is that, is that is Yeah, that exactly. Yeah. Well, like you said, it's a pretty straightforward, for most of the things we're looking for, right? It's a pretty straightforward thing to do. I mean, so like you said with the EKG, you know, nine times out of 10, I'm getting an EKG for something fairly basic. You know, I'm not looking for anything that has to be really poured over by an expert. Same thing with chest x-rays for the most part. Um, and I think the other thing is the volume of chest x-rays that we do in the hospital uh, means that the average radiologist reading chest x-rays just doesn't have a ton of time to devote to each one. And so they, you may have more time to focus on that one than they do. And you know your patient. Um, and so I think it just makes sense for you to be able to do a little of this yourself. Yeah. I mean, like the, the classic uh, situation is you do an x-ray because you're worried about like a pneumothorax and you look at the x-ray and there's a pneumothorax. So somebody puts a tube in it. And then like three hours later, the radiologist calls and it's like, hey, you got a pneumothorax. And you're like, yeah, thank you. Right, right. <laughs> so do you have a approach to reading the chest x-ray? And by that, I mean a kind of systematic method that helps you go through everything. And I, I'm going to ask, do you have any such approach that you were taught or that you teach. Um, and then I'm going to ask you whether you actually use it. Yeah. So I have, we have a couple of approaches that we teach uh, when I teach students. Uh, but basically what I tell them is I don't really care which system you use, just use a system. Cause I do think that's helpful, um, to, to have a system that you use every time. So you don't miss stuff. Um, you know, because I think it's very easy to just look at what it is that we're interested in looking for, right? Um, you know, I'm concerned that there's an effusion. There's not an effusion. Great. Well, but I might miss something that is important that I would otherwise, you know, not see because I'm not looking at things systematically. Um, so I, I think, you know, when I'm looking at a, at a sort of routine chest x-ray, I do tend to follow a system uh, it's not the system that I teach to students. Uh, and I tell students that because I think the best thing for me, at least, is I sort of fine tune the system for what I'm most likely to find, right? In my patient population, it's going to be very rare that I find any kind of bone abnormalities. So that goes pretty far down the list of things I look for. Um, mostly I'm looking at things like, like you said, pleural effusions, pulmonary edema, uh, atelectasis, maybe, uh, you know, infiltrations or consolidations and stuff like that. So I sort of start with just looking at the lungs in general. Um, you know, I look at the size of the heart, the position of the heart, but again, uh, I'm not too concerned with that in my setting. I am likely to already know if they have a big heart, um, or, or any issues like that. Um, and then, you know, looking at the airway itself is always good. Um, and then I think it is good to systematically look at things like the bones and the soft tissue. Um, and then uh, also, I guess I would say looking at the pleura and the diaphragm for things like pneumothorax, hemothorax, um, diaphragmatic injury, stuff like that. But again, where I work, those are all much lower incidents. Yeah. A lot of these, um, methods you see are for sort of everyone or for, you know, maybe outpatient practice. I mean, we're in a kind of specialized setting. There are certain things we're generally looking for. 
I'll be honest. I mean, most of the x-rays I look at, I'm looking at my specific thing and getting a general look overall. I'm not necessarily going through the whole process. But I agree. It's it's good for, for teaching purposes. You have to learn how to look for all these things. And the one time when I am really systematic about it is when the x-ray is just a mess. Yeah. Like, it, it's. I just don't know where to start. And often this is some combination of tons of pathology, um, maybe all kinds of devices or things in, inside and outside the body, and often technical challenges, like a really big patient, um, a really weird angle. You know, we got a lot of this during COVID. They had some patient who was like, prone or something. They were like 500 pounds. You know, they got some like diagonal angle. And you're like, what do I do with this? Where is even the lungs and stuff? So when it's, the more challenging it is and the more that's going on, I think the more helpful it is to have a systematic approach. Um, the one the one I, I guess, learned that I like the most that I will use if I use something is kind of, you know, A, B, C, D, that like kind of goes through letters. And I've seen different ways of assigning these. Um, the one that I settled on, I think is some, probably some hybrid of them. It's, it goes, uh, and you start with technical things like, is this the right patient, the right day and stuff like that. And I think that actually can be important because it's really easy to not be looking at what you think you were looking at. You Absolutely. Know? You're looking at the x-ray from, from like two years before ago. the intervention. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're looking back and you thought this was like the last one, but it was actually the last admission yeah, which was 10 years ago or you have the other patient pulled up. So th that kind of feels like going through the motions, but actually can be pretty important. Um, you know, technical uh, adequacy of it, like is it well penetrated and stuff like that. You probably don't have to dwell on those things, although it's good to know what the criteria are. Um, and then, you know, A for me is the airway, which mostly usually means how does the ET tube yeah. look? <laughs> um, I try to have them a couple centimeters above the carina. I've heard two to four, two to three. Uh, I usually like it a little deeper than not. You know, the worst case is it hits the carina and they cough or you main stem them. Of course, that's possible. Um, but I don't like them coming out, certainly. <laughs> uh, and this would also be where you would look at whether it's in the midline, meaning the trachea, yeah. right? So shifting of the mediastinum uh, into the left or right chest is helpful to support other pathology, such as distinguishing, you know, things you see in the lungs. You know, the classic situation is the whited out hemithorax. One whole lung is just white. And then what? what is that? Is it a fusion? Is it atelectasis? Is something else? Um, the mediastinum is the most helpful thing here, right? Because if you have a completely collapsed lung that's atelectatic, the midline shifts towards that. It gets pulled towards it. And if it's that severe, it'll be striking. Whereas if it's a space occupying lesion like an effusion, it gets pushed away. So I, yeah, I think those things are nice to dwell on as partly to demonstrate the physiology, but also because it, it is good to be able to recognize what your airway looks like. Um, and of course the reference here is usually the spinous processes. You know, those are a posterior structure, the trachea is anterior. Um, so they should line up nicely as long as you're not rotated. <laughs> but if you're a, uh, you know, trachea is pulled to the left, then you'll see it to the left of the, the spine. Yeah, and I think that's one of the cases where that assessing technical adequacy is really important, right? Is this really deviated or is it just rotated? Right. 
And it's so common that uh, it's both. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> it, the fact that you have a so-so film, which so many of them are here, which is not a, a dig against the, the text. Uh, it's hard to get good films in this place. The really beautiful textbook x-rays you see are taken down in the radiology suite with, by the way, a healthier patient who's, you know, standing, positioning themselves, hugging the, the plate. They can take multiple. It's it's like our, our ultrasounds compared to the formal studies. Right. We're kind of making do with what we can right. here. So it's life. But but yeah, you know, common to be rotated. Of course, rotation, we usually assess by looking at those spinous processes and asking, are they directly between the heads of the clavicles? Again, because that should be uh, anterior. Those don't move, and the spine should be posterior. So hard to, hard to assess when there is both rotation and some pathology. But. Yeah, so I have a case that's kind of interesting. I use it, I bring it up in teaching a lot, where we had this white out of the right lung, and uh, you know the patient uh, was a recent surgery patient over the last couple, like post up day three or something, and um, you know increasing oxygen requirements, but not frank distress. And um, looking at the X ray from every indication we had was you know, atelectasis, like a large mucus plug. Um, she was on a lot of FiO2, so we elected to intubate her and bronch. And the bronch was completely clean and normal. Um, and when I put an ultrasound probe on her, she had a huge effusion. I did a thorsentesis and took over a liter of fluid off of her. Um, but by the x-ray, I would have sworn th that it was mucus plugging. So uh, just a little plug for double checking with ultrasound sometimes is helpful. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and certainly for things like effusions, there's no easier yeah. way. Okay. So for me, uh, B is bones, but I agree. Bones are very rarely of a, a ton of interest to us. Um, this is definitely a place where I don't mind leaving it to the radiologists if they're like, hey, by the way, there's a, a rib fracture or something like that. Um, obviously, people like ortho in the ER, it comes up a lot more, but it'd be very strange to have a new bony problem in the ICU. Yeah. And like you said, most of the time, if you're going to encounter that and you don't know about it already, I'm not going to find it, right? The radiologist is going to see it maybe, but it's going to be like a hairline clavicle fracture or a hairline rib fracture that it's, you know, to me, a bone injury on a chest x-ray in the ICU has to be pretty obvious for me to spot it. <laughs> yeah. The, maybe the only time this comes up uh, is... You know, sometimes we get incidental findings related, and this applies to other things too, but these are tricky in settings like trauma where everyone gets like pan scan and just like CTs from head to toe and, you know, answer questions you care about, like, are they bleeding? But sometimes you also find these to like, you know, a mass on the liver or something like that. And it has nothing to do with what you care about, but uh, it's tricky because you, you should like probably tell the patient <laughs> or someone should remember because they should follow up on it. And sometimes by the time they get through the ER, the ICU, and the floors and get discharged, everyone's forgotten. And then there could be, you know, medical legal problems and stuff like, hey, you saw uh, this mass five years ago and no one told the patient and now they have malignant cancer. Um, so. Yeah, you got to be careful with the incidental stuff. Okay, so for me, C is is the heart, you know, C for cardiac. Um, again, this is not, I think, a super useful one. People are super into, like, is this uh, cardiac silhouette enlarged? And they're like, oh, but you can't tell because it's an AP film. I don't care. I yeah. mean, I'm going to echo <laughs> exactly. the patient anyway. <laughs> um, I'm almost more interested, if I'm interested at all, in other sort of aspects of the cardiac silhouette, meaning maybe the... Um, you know, the aorta and kind of what that's doing um, and maybe like the the edges. But by and large, 
this is not super exciting to me. The questions that you could probably answer here, again, are going to be more easily answered with an ultrasound, which I'm probably also doing. You could say, oh, if there's a big effusion, you might see it here. Yeah, you know where else I'll see it? On the it? ultrasound. <laughs> ultrasound, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you can kind of skim through these. Uh, for me, D is the diaphragm. Um, and, you know, what are you looking at here? Uh, you know, is it... They're basically inspiring well. You know, ideally they take these at full inspiration. Um, often that's hard to get in like a vented patient. Um, but it's nice to know, are they super hyperinflated? Like this is a COPD patient or are they super underinflated? Like this is a patient who's just getting poor breaths, whether they're doing them on their own or on the vent. Um, and then uh, this is also a good time to look for effusions here. So do you have nice, crisp, you know, costophrenic angles, or is there some amount of fluid, which there so often is, or does it look like there may be substantial ones? And um, just remember, of course, that the, the crispest, most beautiful effusions with like almost a, a clean uh, meniscus air, kind of a fluid level, uh, are patients who are upright. And most of these films are not taken upright. They're taken in bed. Um, they try to sit them up somewhat, you know, 45 degrees or 30 degrees or something. But when you're laying down more, effusions don't, you know, butt up against the lung horizontally. They kind of layer out diagonally behind it. Or if you're fully supine, they're just completely flat. So it could be kind of hard to appreciate effusions on these films. And that's why, like you were saying, it's very easy on an ultrasound. So when in doubt, just throw one on the chest there. Um, but, you know, effusions will just kind of look like a, sort of a, a gradient fill from the, the diaphragm going up into the lung. And the more they were laid back, uh, the more so. But when you have kind of opacity that looks very even, not like it's focal to the lung, but it's, it's densest at the bottom and kind of just fades out going up, uh, that's when I suspect there's a fusion there. Yeah, you know, you, brought up, you bring up a good point um, talking about the positioning of the patient being so critical is I think this is one of those things and certainly ultrasound, your, your analogy with ultrasound is very, very good as well. Um, but you know, most radiology studies that we do are done under more quote ideal circumstances, right? So the image that you get on a head CT, for example, is going to look like the image of the head CT in the textbook. Uh, whereas chest x-rays in the ICU, I find very rarely look like chest x-rays in a textbook for those reasons, right? Because it's not a patient who's standing up, hugging the film. Um, it's not somebody who's take, able to take a good deep breath in. Um, you know, effusions aren't going to look the same way and stuff. So I, I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of various uh, variants among chest x-rays in the ICU setting, I mean, in the inpatient setting in general, but... Yeah, and that may be why it's helpful for beginners to have a systematic approach to reading them. Because when they just first see the kind of standard messy ICU chest x-ray, um, it, it may just look like a mess. You To you or me, it looks like the kind of usual mess. It's like it's, it's like the labs we see. It's, you know, everyone's anemic. Everyone has a little white right. count, whatever. We don't even see it anymore. Uh, but if you haven't seen them a lot, it, it's just a lot of red arrows. But for a beginner, if you go through things then they can kind of still see everything. Whereas you or I probably just filter out a lot of the the normal abnormal stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, I think we've shared this before, and this comes up a lot in ICU medicine. Is, you know, I used to have an attending who would say, uh, it may look like I'm not paying attention on rounds when you're talking, um, but it's because I'm listening for patterns. You know, I'm a 
post-bleed day four subarachnoid hemorrhage should sound like this. And when it deviates from that, I recognize that and I may go, okay, let's now let's dive in. And I think a lot of times what we do, you and I and people who do this have done this a long time, that's what we do with chest x-rays, right? As we look and we go, looks fine, right? And if if I take the chest x-ray off the screen and pin you down and say, tell me what it looked like, you might not even be able to tell me, right? But you're like, I, don't, I mean, it looks like a, what I expected it to look like, even if I can't articulate it, because I know what the pattern should be. And like you said, when we get into those that are really a mess is when we need to sit down and like really look through it. Yeah, and we shouldn't be cavalier about it. That also does raise the the risk of, of missing stuff. Sure. You know, the subtler things or really unexpected things. You know, someone says, or the radiologist is like, hey, there's like a, I don't know, like a frog on this x-ray. And you go back, you're like, wow, yeah, I don't <laughs> I not see that. <laughs> well, you weren't being systematic. Yeah. You were doing your usual skimming thing. And, you know, can you be rigorous systematic for everything you look at all the time? No, no it would take you know, you we get it, get we use, yeah, heuristics, we use yeah. kind of shortcuts. Um, so this is sort of an inevitable balance, yeah. I think. I but. do like to think that I would see a frog on the x-ray, though, just... You like to think. You remember that 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 psych study where they show everyone the video or they count the ball or something, and no one sees that there's like a monkey yeah, walking yeah. through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People are uh, they get tunneled on yeah. stuff. Okay, we've got A, B, C, D, uh, E now. Uh, I've learned E for a, a bunch of stuff, and the one that I've said a lot, I just think is the most practically useful um, for me. E is edges. So I follow the pleural line all the way around both lungs, and I'm mostly looking for a pneumothorax, of course. Uh, I want to see that there is, you know, lung markings going all the way out to the edge of the lung, and there is not, you know, a, a distinct kind of second line of, of pneumothorax anywhere. And big ones, hopefully, will jump out at you. Um, small ones, you're not going to find unless you actually trace that line all the way around, uh, particularly in, you know, technically challenging x-rays, and uh, particularly up at the apices, which of course is the first place pneumos develop and the hardest place to read because there's a lot of bones and stuff up there. Yeah, agreed. Um, you know, and, and this is one of those things that you would like to think that if your patient had a significant, clinically significant pneumothorax, you would already be looking for it because they would display signs and symptoms of it. But I think it's one of those things that uh, you don't necessarily have to have a clinically significant one for it to be import an important finding and a sign of something else, like a bronchopleural fistula, for example. Yeah, I, you know, the classic teaching was you should never even have an x-ray of a pneumothorax yeah. because you should have already diagnosed it and treated it, and waiting for an x-ray means they might deteriorate. Of course, that was the days when x-rays took a lot longer, and people were probably a lot better at physical diagnosis. Nowadays, we have like CAT scans and MRIs and pneumothorax probably. Um, but, you know, you're right. Uh, even a small one could be relevant. Let's say in a patient who's intubated, um, you just stuck a needle in their lung accidentally. Now they have a small pneumo. Probably gonna be bigger in a few hours mm -hmm. if you don't do something about it. Uh, so you, sh you shouldn't just miss these things. And again, I'll be more thorough looking for them if I have a specific suspicion, like um, they are just being instrumented in and around the chest with a thora or a subclavian line or something like that. Yeah. Okay, uh, A, B, C, D, E, and then F for me is the lung fields. And that means basically the whole lung. And this is probably, like we were saying, 
the actual thing you're interested in a lot of the time. But that's why I like putting it at the end. Because the whole point of being systematic is to not miss the smaller stuff that would, you would otherwise be distracted by the big thing. So if they have horrible ARDS or something, um, that's the only thing you're going to see. It's like a distracting injury. It's a distracting finding. Um, but if you start with all the small stuff, then you pick those up first. So this is where you get into it. You know, you look at all the different fields of the lung. You can compare the two sides. Um, and the only thing I'll say about interpreting this, because there's obviously a lot to it, is... Um, you know, pneumonia, ARDS, uh, pulmonary edema, and so on. It's nice to have the ability to at least recognize a couple general patterns. And the, the two patterns are, you know, interstitial disease and airspace disease. And so, you know, an example would be cardiogenic pulmonary edema, you know, CHF. Uh, as your wedge pressure increases and you start to leak fluid into your lungs, it starts out in the interstitium. You know, you start to kind of wet down those little walls between alveoli, and that's an interstitial process. As your wedge pressure continues to increase and you force out more and more fluid, it enters the actual air spaces of the alveoli and those communicating airways, and now it becomes a, an airspace disease. Um, and of course, many diseases are mainly one or the other. Classic pneumonias are an airspace problem, uh, but you know some atypical pneumonias uh, and like viral pneumonitis is more of an interstitial problem. Um, you know, ARDS is usually an airspace problem, uh, and so on. And the my best way of describing these patterns is that interstitial processes look like the actual architecture of the lung. You know, a lung is this, it's a honeycomb of all these little alveoli, right? And if you took a, a like a slice of that, you would see it's kind of a, a lacy pattern of little, little bubbles, little sort of hexagons. And you sort of see that on a regular x-ray, but because all those walls are so thin, you don't see much of it. But if you start to thicken those walls, now you see it more clearly. And that's what interstitial changes look like it's sort of exaggeration of what looks like sort of normalish lung architecture. At least that's kind of how it looks to me. And then airspace disease in distinction looks like it ignores lung architecture. You know, severe ARDS or pneumonia or super severe like pulmonary edema, it looks almost like someone took, you know, cotton balls and they're not even in the lungs you could just lay them on the chest it almost it's like all the normal anatomy is just effaced um so it doesn't look like lung that's somehow exaggerated it looks like there is something that is kind of non-anatomic there <laughs> uh, it's just like fluffy stuff kind of laying on top of the person so that's my kind of i guess broad way of assessing these two things and if you can at least understand that what you're looking at is more one or the other of those then i think it gets you into the right differential category. Yeah, that's good. I think that's a good point. Um, I like what you said about the interstitial following the anatomy. Um, I always love it when I get the rare, the rare shot of an end on, uh, you know, a vessel or, um, or, or an air airway, small airway, and you can see that perfect circle that's really thick. Um, you know, that's a, a good example of this is that uh, interstitial process, that pulmonary edema. Yeah. And, you know, it, it kind of 
makes you understand the physiology of these diseases too, right? Like I was saying about CHF, you know, it, it's first one, then the other, and other things are predominantly one or the other. And this is a great time to look at CAT scans too, because all this stuff we're talking about, you'll see, you know, so much more clearly on a CT. Yeah. And, you know, to the extent sometimes where it's a little silly, I mean, you'll, you'll get these chest x-rays where you just like, you don't know what to make of it, or it looks like there's nothing. Like it's just not a bad looking x-ray at all. Then you get a CT and it's just like, it's like horrendous. There's like all this disease and you're like, where was this on the x-ray? Yeah, I, that's, I feel like I see that a lot when we have big effusions or empyemas and stuff is you look at the x-ray and you go, I don't know, it's just kind of gray. I don't know what to make of it. And you get this CAT scan that shows clearly there's a huge massive thing here that you probably need to drain. Yeah, it, and this is when you start thinking, like, not only are a lot of these x-rays for no indication, even the ones that could tell you something, they're often, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, these are not great studies. And that's kind of the the conclusion you might reach after all the complaining we've been doing about them. And that it's good to recognize their limitations. Like, maybe you don't order it, first of all, if it's not going to help. But also, if it doesn't show you much, recognize that maybe it's because the x-ray, it was just not sensitive enough. Maybe you need another study like an ultrasound or a CT just to even see what you're treating here. Yeah, I g agreed. I mean, I think there more and more I'm learning about things that you can diagnose with lung ultrasound. And I, I sometimes wonder like, why, why do we even get as many x-rays as we do? I think part of it, I think is time. You know, it's, it takes a lot less time for me to scroll through you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, even 10 chest x-rays in the morning than it would be to go ultrasound five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 people. So, right. You, know, you just click a button. Yeah. It's, a, else it's a good it. screening test if nothing else. Right. Yeah. So that's my rubric. And then we've hit F and then uh, this is the only problem with it, using these letters. Uh, I don't have another, a good one for G, but after this is, is everything else, meaning all the hardware. So all these things, you know, the, uh, I guess we talked about the ET tube in the airway, but so any lines, any other support devices, chest tubes, uh, any drains you could see, whatever, balloon pumps, pacemakers. Um, and again, I, I kind of like this at the end because often either it might be the specific thing you're looking for, like a line confirmation, or they just tend to be kind of dramatic and impressive. So if you fixate on them, you might not see those other things. Like I, I've had seen mnemonics where these go under like uh, E for everything else or, or where you do them at the beginning, and that's all fine. But I think it can be nice to leave it at the end um, to make sure you're not missing other things. So... What you care about in here may not be very much. Sometimes a lot of this is just distractors. I mean, you'll see a lot of wires and things that are just outside the body. You'll see maybe chronic things like a pacemaker. Um, and you'll see some stuff that hasn't changed, like the line you put in four days ago. But just like the rest of this, you want to be able to kind of uh, recognize them all, know what they are, and then know if there's anything relevant to you regarding them. Yeah. All right, so... I guess that's a, that's a take on x-rays. Um, other things to think about are, uh, you know, you mentioned radiation. By and large, we don't give this a lot of attention. And that even applies to things like CAT scans for us because the general feeling is that the risk of ionizing radiation for any legitimate indication for these studies in a critically ill patient, um, the risk that you're missing an important diagnosis is far greater than whatever risk you have of essentially uh, cancer, right? 
you're inducing mutations that may in 20 years lead to a significant neoplasm. A lot of our patients are older anyway, and that, I mean, that, that sounds callous, but legitimately in the radiology world, the older you are, the less you care about these things because it does take time to see these effects. That's why they care more in, in pediatrics. Um, but we don't kind of worry too much about it usually. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I work in a neuro ICU, so chest X-rays are nothing. I mean, we radiate people's heads with the head CTs sometimes on a daily basis. So what's one more chest X-ray? Yeah. And people also underestimate how much radiation they get from other sources. You know, you worry about a chest X-ray, you probably got more radiation um, taking a you know, commercial airline flight or eating a banana. You'll see <laughs> some examples apparently is uh, <laughs> has radiation, but... Um, and the other thing is, you know, for chests even, how you do them, almost all of them, like I said, are AP films, meaning, you know, it's taken from the front of the patient with a plate placed behind them, just slid under them against the bed. Um, if your patient can stand, of course, you could get a PA film, which goes the other way, and uh, it can just be a little clearer and, the, you know, the heart's the right size and stuff. But uh, you can get laterals, but it's really hard in bed-bound patients. I've, I've done it. Uh, the techs get really annoyed. Uh, there's just not logistically a good way because you have to put a plate to one side of the patient in bed. Um, you got to like wedge it or tape it there somehow. Uh, the patients can't usually like put their arms overhead so the bones are in the way. And then you're shooting the x-ray straight across them, uh, which probably means you shouldn't shoot it like into the hallway because you might be getting some other people. So it's just a mess. And that does limit the sensitivity to some to some pathology uh, or make it harder to see things that someone who had, you know, a nice PA film and, and laterals and a standing patient probably could have diagnosed. Yeah, I think um, there's definitely a, a limitation to how useful anything other, well, even like we've talked about, even the standard AP film, but anything other than that in the ICU, uh, it's pretty limited. Yeah. And, you know, there probably are times in some patients where eh, well, you could send them down to the radiology suite and they're actually pretty stable. They're in the ICU for some other reason. Um, it's kind of a niche case, though. And a lot of the times when they, someone could travel, we might just be like, well, we'll just get a CAT scan. <laughs> They'll travel to CT if, it's gonna, if they're going to go somewhere. X-rays are, you know, kind of a dated technology. And that's yeah. why they've gotten relegated to these sort of specific use cases that take advantage of their, their portability, their relatively low amounts of radiation. To ask specific questions, like where is the tip of my central line? Not so much to answer broad diagnostic questions like what's wrong with this guy's lungs? Yeah, and I think, I mean, I don't see this a lot where I am, but I read about it a lot. You know, there's even technology like using ultrasound to to ascertain the placement of lines and um, even the tip of the ET tube, for example, um, and getting away from x-ray altogether. And I think, honestly, the thing that keeps that, from what I can tell, from becoming more mainstream is a lot of institutional inertia, right? We just get chest x-rays because that's what we do. Um, and they're good for that. So, Yeah, and perhaps there's a, a user dependence as well. It takes skill to you know use an ultrasound for certain things. Of course, you have to learn how to read an x-ray too. So everything is trade-offs. Yeah. Okay, anything else about chest x-rays? No, I think the only thing I would mention is I'll put a plug in for one of my favorite chest x-ray resources um, out there. And one I recommend to my students is uh, 
called Radiology Masterclass, and it's put on by the Royal College of Radiologists in the UK. It's uh, it's a great site. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, they've got tutorials and courses you can do on chest X-rays, head CTs, uh, brain MRIs, all sorts of things. Um, you do not have to pay for these. There is a thing that you can register and pay for that is to get actual like CME credit from the Royal college of radiologists, uh, which I doubt any of us care that much about anyway. So you can go and take their course for free. They have tons of good libraries of, uh, images to look at. Um, I just think it's a, it's a really great resource if you're interested in getting better at reading your chest x-rays. So. Yeah, seconded. I, I definitely made use of them when I was learning, and it's um, there's some great resources there. All right, Brian, that's all I got. I don't know when I'll see you. Uh, things are a little weird, but I'm sure we'll reconvene soon. Yep. Good luck with everything. <laughs> <laughs>